So now I get to uh, uh, begin uh, a series of kind of broader talks, um, Liberty and the American Experience. Um, today I'm, I'm talking about Liberty and the Amer American Experience all the way up to and, and through the American Revolution. And then tomorrow I'll get to talk a little bit about um, how the post-revolutionary uh, history of the United States has affected liberty. But um, it certainly is kind of a, a, a unique heritage that Americans possessed. Even before there was uh, an American Revolution, even before anyone dreamed of independence, um, by virtue of our status as Englishmen, we considered ourselves to be quite free and quite lucky. Um, John Adams described the British Constitution as the most perfect combination of human powers and society which finite wisdom has yet contrived and reduced to practice for the preservation of liberty and the production of happiness. And of course, the, the, the British Constitution that Adams's generation um, at least initially venerated was the Constitution born out of the glorious revolution, right, where you see um, James II deposed and uh, William and Mary elevated uh, as a king and queen who agreed to work with Parliament to, to recognize that the people should have a voice and, and, and most important, that people should have rights and that the purpose of government is to protect those rights. It's, uh, it's, it's very important to understand that the glorious revolution of 1688 has a real impact upon the American Revolution of 1776. It's, it's difficult to imagine what our revolution would have been like, or even if our revolution would have existed had it not been for the glorious revolution, because it provided the basis of all of our ideas about liberty. When you uh, think about the people who have the unenviable task of explaining and justifying the glorious revolution. First among them is John Locke. And uh, John Locke has an unenviable task because in many respects, the British, and here I generalize, um, it's always dangerous to generalize, um, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Uh, my experience with, with my British friends is British, they're, they're not the most revolutionary people around. The British are very prudent. They're very cautious as a whole. They tend to be very orderly, wonderfully polite, nice people. Um, but revolutionaries? I, I, when I think of bomb throwers, I don't think of, of, of British people. Um, they have some special talents that I think speak to their orderly na nature. Um, they're very good, among other things, uh, at, at queuing. It's standing in line. <laughs> Seriously, it's one of their like national talents is standing, standing in line. They're very good at it. Uh, in America, you know, this is the wild frontier as far as lines are concerned. Uh, it's still sort of a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I remember as a child going to the supermarket with my mother, and she would get in one line, and she would have me stand in another line, <laughs> right? And if my line was moving faster, she'd move over and join me. But if, if her line was faster, I'd go back and join her. But in Britain, no. In Britain, they tend to have these nice compound lines, sort of like you see at Barnes & Noble. They have lines like this. And 
uh, you know, everybody stands in the same line and then you get up to the front and the, the next available cashier will, will help you check out. Um, they're very good at that, right? But they're not, you wouldn't think they'd be very good at having revolutions. And I think the, the British felt kind of, kind of guilty, kind of apologetic, kind of embarrassed that they had this revolution, that they overthrew their monarch. And so it was important to them to explain it. It was important to them to justify it. And it was to John Locke that they turned to perform that task. John Locke, I mean, I, I, I can't uh, emphasize enough how important I think John Locke is. If I had to come up with a, a, a list of like the, the top 10 most influential people to live in the past 1,000 years, I mean, John Locke would definitely be on my list. He might even be at the very top of my list. I mean, this is a man who is going to be famous um, for a number of things. Um, of course, immediately after the Glorious Revolution, you have his two treatises on government. Uh, you have his thoughts on education, his essay on human understanding. Um, he's famous uh, for uh, helping to write the, the Fundamental Orders of South Carolina, as well as his uh, uncanny resemblance to actress Jessica Tandy. <laughs> it's, it's really startling, isn't it? <laughs> um, but John Locke, he's, he's important. He is a big deal. And um, he helps the British understand that their revolution was justified because their king was not serving the only rightful purpose of government. And the only rightful purpose of government, according to John Locke, the only reason people ever would have invented government in the first place is to protect people's rights. He posited that if you go back far enough, you find people living in a state of nature. Can I have a volunteer? You look like you want to volunteer. What's your name? Kyle. Kyle, will you come on up? So Kyle, give him a hand. Kyle is uh, a caveman. And um, here he is. You can see him in the state of nature. Uh, it's wonderful. It's kind of like, um, it's sort of like the, the uh, Outback Steakhouse phase of history. Um, what's the, the slogan for Outback? No rules, just right. No rules, just right. Right? So as John Locke would say, in the state of nature, this is, you know, before we have any governments or you know, before like uh, birth certificates or the Department of Motor Vehicles or draft cards or whatever, um, the no rules, just rights. So, uh, you know, Kyle, I just want to ask, as a, as a caveman, um, when do you, who decides when you get up in the morning? I decide when I get up in the morning. Okay. And once you get up, what do you do? Um, whatever I want. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty simple, isn't it? What are some things you might want to do? Eat. <laughs> It's very predictable. Uh, okay, how will that? How will you make that happen? I will find something to eat, such as berries, berries, or perhaps nuts or roots. Right? Um, you might also. Uh, I don't. Know, do you like fish? I love fish. So, how how would you get those? Uh, I, I catch one with your bare hands. 
Yeah, okay, so you might make a net. Um, which, how would you do that? How would you make a net? They don't have Bass Pro Shops in the state of nature. Oh. <laughs> you can string out of bark? Yeah, maybe, or you know, you could find, uh, you know, vines or whatever. You, yeah. you, maybe through trial and error you can improvise. You might um, uh, take a branch and uh, kind of take a stone and whittle it into a, a spear and make a spear for spearing fish. Or maybe you can make a basket um, for trapping them. Uh, you might decide that you want to go hunting. You might uh, be able to come up with um, a bow and arrow or uh, a club or, you know, you, you basically take um, things and uh, fiddle with them, improve them. And John Locke would say that you are establishing property rights and things. Um, you know, it, it's funny. John Locke says he has uh, rights that exist before government does. Right, he has rights that exist um, because as Locke would say, God has given them to him. Um, or if you prefer to say, you could, he has rights that reflect his humanity. Without these rights, he wouldn't, his humanity would be denied. He has a right to think for himself. I mean, that's part of his basic humanity because there's, there's something interesting about Kyle's anatomy uh, that, that you share. We all, how do we know that he's designed to think for himself? What, what does he have that allows him to think for himself? He has his own brain, right? And you'll notice people don't share brains. You know, everybody has his or her own brain. And we're designed to, to have free thought. He's designed to move about freely. He has hands with which he can um, interact with the world and, and you know, make a net or uh, whittle down a, a branch and make a spear. Um, and Locke says that uh, he has all these different rights um, and he establishes a right to property when he mixes his labor with something. So Kyle can't just like, you know, look at the vast forest and proclaim that it's all his. And he, he can't make a claim like that and have a legitimate right to that as property. But if he mixes his labor with something, if you clear a field, um, if, you, if you take some sticks and you build a, a hut, um, then it's yours. That's awesome, right? I mean, you, you established that you have property. So there are no rules, just rights. You're loving life. You get up when you want. You go to bed when you want. You're living the good life. You're hunting, you're fishing, you're, traffic, you're trapping nuts and berries. You know, if you run out of animals in one area, you can move on and, and, and go to the next. It's awesome, right? What could possibly go wrong? May I have another volunteer? What's your, sir, do you mind? What's your name? Rob. Rob? You're Rob too? Okay, so there's another Rob, and uh, Rob, come on forward. Rob is, I'm sure in real life he's a wonderfully nice guy, but for our purposes, he is a terrible, barbaric thug, okay? Yeah, who has uh, a really big, um, and, and to you, we could see it here, but uh, to you, invisible club, and uh, Look, isn't this wonderful? Kyle has a basket of fish right here that he's caught, put a lot of labor, and mm, yum, yum. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't you like those fish? I have a better idea. <laughs> well, hold on. <laughs> That's a great idea, but it, but it, but it hasn't come yet. So uh, you've got this club. What do you think you're going to do? Well, it depends on how much work it is to catch my own fish versus repair a bloody nose. You've got a really big club. 
He's standing here with this basket of fish, unarmed. Well, I just try to scare him and drop the fish. <laughs> Rob, you're too nice. <laughs> you're supposed to be a barbarian. Okay, whack. Boom, all right? And now you have the basket of fish. And a club. And a club. <laughs> and Kyle, I have to, I mean, this, we're going to get all Oprah here for a second, but I have to ask you, how, how did that make you feel? <laughs> Really, really hurt. All right, really, really hurt. Um, so what can we do to empower you? Oh, my God. I, I, a, a club? Maybe a, a, a big club. That would be great, right? You could get an even bigger club than Rob. That, that's one thing that you could do. That's, that's, a, that's a fine idea. Let's keep going. What's another one? More people. More people, right? So uh, if we had two other volunteers? Do you like it how like the volunteers are the people Where's I point problem? to? <laughs> Do you mind? So what are your names? James, James and, and Monique. So James and Monique are part of your posse, right? And they're, they're going to join with you. Rob has this big club, but he's also kind of encumbered now by the basket of fish. I don't know how you're juggling the two. Um, <laughs> would you help uh, Kyle get his, uh, his fish back? Now you're outnumbered. They've got weapons. Here, take the fish. Yeah, right. All right. And, and Rob, uh, we thank you very much, but you are now banished. So go back to your seat. Go back to your seat. So, boy, it really is a good thing that we got rid of Rob because uh, he was a barbaric thug, first of all. Um, actually, you've been the most genteel uh, and obliging barbaric thug, thug I've, I've ever met. But, um, you know, you got off easily because he only took your property. He could have done worse. You know, he could have taken um, away your liberty, right? He could have kidnapped you or enslaved you. He could have taken away your life. And, and, uh, and you, I have to say, Monique and, tell me, and James, brave people. To really, like, you sort of, you know, stuck your necks out for Kyle. I mean, you, you risked life and limb to help him get his property back. So uh, I guess my question is, well, what's in it for you? What do you expect in, in return? What, what does he owe to you? Protection money. Protection money. <laughs> someone, someone out there said fish. I mean, that would be fine if it was just a one-time deal. Um, but that, it, it seems unlikely, given that you kind of rushed to his aid. Um, you know, I didn't hear him yelling, you know, help, free fish for people who will, you know, help me get my... In some ways, this is a, a wonderful agreement that you've come up with. And I, I suspect that it might be useful to make it long-term. Um, you were present to help him out when his rights were violated. Um, in the future, would you be present to help them out if their rights are violated? I would be present to help Yeah. Them. So, I mean, that's what government's all about, according to John Locke. That's why we bother to have it. it, it it's, it's for instances when people threaten our rights, when they threaten our life or our liberty or our property, when, when someone threatens to take our property away, our, our, our freedom away, our life away. We, we band together so that we can protect one another. And, uh, and that is why government exists. That's the purpose of government. That, according to Locke, is the only rightful purpose of government. So this is wonderful. And something important has happened. We've left the state of nature, all right? We're now much more civilized. But, but imagine, imagine if few generations from now, Monique the Third should rise up 
and declare herself empress of this civilization. And if instead of this, this group of people banding together to protect each other's rights, Monique III, she starts using her power to uh, take away people's rights, to arbitrarily seize people's property, to violate their, their liberty, or if people really uh, get in her way, just to snuff them out, to take their lives. According to, to Englishman John Locke, what would their descendants have the right to do? Now, remember, he's English. Stand in line. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. He said, he said, stand in line to rebel. Uh, so it's sort of like that. What do they have the right to do? Did someone say it? Petition. They have the right to petition. Again, very orderly, very reserved. Yeah, they have the right to petition. They have the right to say, you know, please, Empress Monique III, um, stop your tyrannical ways. But if she refused, what then do they have the right to do? Then they have the right to revolt. Then they have the right to overthrow their government and establish a government that does government's job, which is to protect individual rights. Can you see how this is kind of important to the revolutionary generation? How this would have been on their minds? You know? So anyway, thank you very much to our volunteers. So, I mean, this is an important part of the Anglo-American mind. This is an important part of this rich tradition of liberty that English-speaking people on this side of the ocean um, inherit. It, it is uh, not lost upon them that to be English is to be free, that that is a, a signal um, distinction about their nationality. And they're quite patriotic as a result of it. Um, long before there's any sort of imperial crisis. Um, people have a set of values um, that I, I think provide people on this side of the ocean with uh, a particularly strong basis for freedom. Um, one is a kind of old-fashioned um, sentiment, in some ways kind of chauvinistic seeming um, and politically incorrect, but, but very real and very important. James Otis, 1761, you know, long before um, we could say that there was an imperial crisis, is spouting off the traditional English notion that one of the most essential branches of English liberty is the freedom of one's house. A man's house is his castle. You know, and, and this is a saying that we still sometimes hear, and um, I think people don't fully appreciate the significance of this sentiment. I mean, this is a sentiment that comes from a land where there was still limited as it was, but a monarchy. A man's house is his castle. What, what does that mean? It means that, you know, if, if you're the owner of a house, you are the king or the queen of your house. And if you're the king or the queen of your house, who is not the king or queen of your house? The king or queen. You know? I mean, the king or queen might be king or queen out on the public road. The king or queen might be king or queen out in the public square. But you, you are the sovereign of your own property. You get to call the shots. You get to make the decisions. And it's not just you. You might be the king of your house, but your neighbor, she's queen of her house. 
And if, if you're going to retain your status as king of yours, you have to respect her status as queen of hers. Which means that you sort of develop this tolerance for diversity. You develop a tolerance for the fact that you might make certain decisions about what you do in your house and on your land, and you have a right to make those decisions. But for the same reasons, your neighbors have the right to make decisions, even decisions that you might sometimes disagree with. I mean, this is an important building block for the sort of average, regular, workaday tolerance that you see developing in what would become the United States. You have also um, the development of an increasing amount of religious diversity, beginning, um, of course, with the initial waves of settlers, people of different faiths landing in different places. But still, the tradition for the next 100 years would be that um, wherever you went, there was one dominant church. And wherever you went, there was one church that was government-supported. And there were laws in the books mandating that you attend that church and that your tax money would go to the support of that particular favored government church. And in some respects, it was almost as if each colony had something like a religious monopoly. And the result was that these colonies, some of which were populated by people who were full of religious enthusiasm, maybe not surprisingly, over time, the, the government control and promotion of these churches actually worked against people's um, commitment to their faiths. When you think about where you might go and get better customer service, um, I'll, I'll give you a choice. Where, where would you rather go and where do you think you'd have a better experience? Um, at, a, at a bank or at the Department of Motor Vehicles? <laughs> where will you be treated better? Where will you have a, a better experience? They get, almost everyone would say at the bank. Even, even uh, you know, West Point, the tiny little town outside of West Point, Highland Falls, it's like five or six different banks in it, you know, all competing with one another. You go to the bank, the line will be short, the people will be courteous, the, the, the business will be efficient. If you don't like the bank, you, have a re you, you can go to another bank. You can do business somewhere else. If you don't like the experience that you receive at the Department of Motor Vehicles, what's your option? <coughs> Learn to walk, right? <laughs> or ride your bike. Because without a driver's license or a license plate, you're, you're not getting in that car. And in some ways, churches in the colonial era had become more like the Department of Motor Vehicles than a local bank or any other competitive um, enterprise. They were part of a monopoly. And, and, and a, a preacher, whether he was particularly effective or not, was going to get paid. And the law wasn't going to change. The preacher might be... Uh, delivering compelling sermons, or they might be boring as all get out, but the law still was going to require people to attend. And this, this set of colonies, many of which were established for religious reasons, 
had really kind of fallen into a kind of spiritual slumber by the middle of the 18th century. Until 1739, when this man, George Whitfield, showed up on American shores. George Whitfield touched off what, what people will call the Great Awakening. And just the name suggests, you know, what, what came before. This is the Great Religious Awakening. What comes before that? The Great Religious Slumber. But he wakes people up. Uh, George Whitfield is a popular preacher. Um, he is uh, sort of like a rock star of his time. Wherever he goes, there are huge crowds. Um, he has a big, booming voice. He preaches in a way that is compelling. Um, he is able to relate his sermons to people's everyday lives. Um, people uh, respond to him with enthusiasm, with passion. He preaches in Boston, at the time a town of 15,000. 20,000 people show up on Boston Common. He speaks in the Old South Meeting House. People pack into that church building to such a great degree that when finally he's done, when finally he concludes his sermon, when finally the crowd begins to recede from the building, three bodies fall from the walls against which they'd been pressed to death. He goes down to Philadelphia, and Ben Franklin's in Philadelphia, and he's heard about George Whitfield, you know, the man famous for his, uh, his sermons, the man whose strange cross-eyed stare people found so compelling. Seriously, he was cross-eyed, and he'd gaze at people, and it was like they were, a, a tractor beam was grasping them, you know, pulling them in. Ben Franklin, this you know, great man of, of the Enlightenment, said, I just can't believe that so many thousands could go and just actually hear him, that, it, that his sermons would be audible. How, how does that work? So when Whitfield preached in Philadelphia, uh, Franklin had already gone to the site of his sermon, and he'd sort of measured it out, and he measured uh, the circumference of, of, of the area. And then he, when people began to fill in, he did a little head count, and he figured out how many people per square foot and he, and, he, and he counted the total number of square feet, and he got as far away as he could and still hear George Whitfield. And based on that, he determined that there were 20,000 people in Philadelphia who could hear this man and who were there to hear him. And the passion and the enthusiasm that was generated by George Whitfield was, was, was mimicked by others. Can you imagine how awful it would be if you were one of the the you know, government monopoly church um, ministers who, like Whitfield, came through town on Sunday and no one showed up at your church. You'd feel so sad, you know? But it'd be like the first indication that, that you ever had that you weren't that good. And you would want to be good, and you might emulate his style, right? And uh, there were people, of course, who not only emulated his preaching style, but this general resurgence in people's religious devotion also coincided with a flowering of religious diversity in America. So in the mid-18th century, suddenly, you, you have something like a marketplace for religion. And in a sizable town where previously there might just be one church on the main street, now maybe there are two or three or four. And you see um, the, the, the rise of uh, Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and all sorts of new sort of insurgent religious groups um, offering options to people in America. 
it's, uh, it's probably not insignificant that the, um, the, the, the preachers who came to America um, and the preachers who were in America and had their preaching style improved uh, by uh, the, the Great Awakening, that they would have an important role to play in um, what would come to follow in the middle of the, uh, the 18th century as we move into the, the imperial crisis. So Locke's ideas have an important um, role. The uh, religious diversity and enthusiasm and the sense of toleration brought about um, by uh, the Great uh, Awakening has an important role. And really, one that is destabilizing too, because the people who suddenly are members of these upstart faiths, you know, if you're a Baptist in Virginia, and yet your colonial government, um, like, like the, the crown, supports the Church of England, or if you're a Presbyterian in Pennsylvania, or if you're a Methodist in Massachusetts, whatever the case may be, if you belong to a faith that is a minority faith that is not the official sanctioned church, you believe something really profound and, and really profoundly good if you care about liberty. You believe that the government could be wrong about God. If the government could be wrong about God, then certainly the government could be wrong about garbage collection. You know, if the government could be wrong about God, certainly the government could be wrong about taxes. If the government could be wrong about God, certainly it could be wrong about trade policy. If the government could be wrong about God, the government could be wrong about everything. The government could be wrong about anything. What an important view. And, and then there are Americans um, who also believe in the sort of cycle of history as explained to them by English Whig historians. This notion that, um, in many ways, civilizations tend to rise and fall. And, and that their civilization, their Anglo-American transatlantic civilization, was not immune to these trends and this trajectory of rise and growth and development, but eventual decline. And, and, and this really made them anxious, especially as they began to sort of look at the world around them and see signs of, of, of rot within the British government. The story of, of how this cycle takes place um, is told to us nicely by a series of paintings um, done in the 1830s by a, uh, a famous painter named Thomas Cole. And the uh, collection is called The Course of Empire. And uh, there are five panels. It begins in the state of nature. And we just witnessed what it's like in this uh, civilization where there are no rules, just rights, but not much safety. And as a result, people are going to settle down. They're going to cease their nomadic ways. They are going to learn to pick up the plow so that they can be available to one another and, and work together to protect their rights. And so you move from the, uh, this phase to the next phase, the, the pastoral phase, the agrarian phase. And people believe that in the agrarian phase, this was really a happy time, especially if you cared about freedom, especially if you cared about self-government. You know, whether you're talking about individual self-government or whether you're talking about the, the few times when truly you have to come together 
and, and, and engage in collective self-government. People in, in this phase of civilization seemed especially well-suited to assume that daunting responsibility because they're farmers, right? And farmers, the founding generation believed, possessed a, a set of characteristics that made them almost perfectly qualified to be good citizens. For, for one thing, farmers were uh, hardworking. I mean, what ultimately do you call a lazy farmer back then? Dead, right? I mean, first they'd be kind of skinny, then they'd be starving, finally they'd be dead. This is long before their subsidies and you know, other such things. It's the way farming used to be. So farmers are hardworking. Farmers also, they're, they're, they're independent. They own their own land, and they provide for themselves and their families. So they are independent of mind and means. They're, they're used to being their own boss. You know, many of us um, don't have uh, that, that wonderful luxury. We're not our own bosses. Um, some of us work in hierarchical environments. I know I do. You know, at West Point, Everyone has a rank. Even civilians sort of have a rank. Like, it's informal, but, you know, I, I need to know where I stand because I need to know who is supposed to call me sir and I'm supposed to know who I'm supposed to call sir or ma'am. You need to know where you fit in. You need to know who your inferiors are and you need to know who your superiors are. Oh, that would be... The, the founding generation, such words, such attitudes... So corrosive. So corrosive if you care about liberty. It's not about inferiors. It's not about superiors. It's about being your own person. It's about taking care of yourself. It's about calling your own shots. It's about being your own boss. And in America, in the 18th century, this sort of describes our, our situation. We were a nation, of, of, or a nation to be of small farmers. People who, who, by and large, tilled their own land, worked their own soil, and, 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 and provided for their own needs. They were subject, perhaps in theory, to the king, but in practice, they were subject to no one. What, what, a, what a great reality if you care about a, a group of people who could be citizens in, in a free society. And, of course, farmers are not only hardworking, not only can they take care of themselves and their own basic needs, not only because of that are they less susceptible to people who might try to use government to influence them, to take from some, um, to, to, to give to others, to, to buy their support or buy their votes. They're not susceptible to that sort of thing. At least they're considered less so because they, they can provide what they really need for themselves. And it's not as if these are um, individuals who are um, living as hermits, right, off in the wilderness. These people are members of communities, and they're good members of communities, and communities are important. There's nothing wrong with community, and you appreciate that as a farmer. You have every reason to appreciate that as a farmer. Here's an example that might illustrate the point that I really want to make. Um, imagine that you've got a house, and um, someone's going to move in next door, and you can choose who that person will be, but you only have two choices. Your next door neighbor could be a farmer or your next door neighbor could be a carny, a carnival worker. You've seen Austin Powers, you know, small hands smell like cabbage. 
Who would you rather have as a neighbor, a farmer or a carnival worker? Everyone's saying farmer. Now, I want to stipulate that I have nothing, I have nothing against carnival workers. My mother is a carnival worker. No. No, she's not. She's not. I was just kidding. But, uh, but yeah. Um, but carnival workers, I mean, you know, a farmer, if your farmer's next door neighbor, probably be a pretty good neighbor. What, what might you fear if a carny moved next door? I, I'm just going to guess that uh, on a Saturday morning, where might you see a carny? Where might you find a carny? Passed out next to his house, right? Scattered across your lawn or like empty 40s and cigarette butts and who knows what else, right? Where do you find a farmer on a Saturday morning? Out in the fields, working away, or perhaps, perhaps, behind the church, building a playground for the children, right? <laughs> because the carny, and this is the reason I choose carny, the carny by definition is nomadic, right? The carnies, carnies move from place to place. They follow the carnival as it goes from town to town. You know, carnival's fun for a little bit. Yeah, guess my weight, let's do the shell game, that sort of thing. But after a while, you realize that you're kind of just getting, um, you know, suckered of your money, and, and it, it loses its amusement value. They have to keep moving. But farmers, farmers by the nature of what they do are, are literally rooted in the soil. Farmers are the opposite of fly-by-night people. They have a vested interest in their communities. And they have a vested interest not only in their community, they have a vested interest in their reputation within their community. So if, if, if a carnival worker um, tricks you or deceives you, a farmer has a compelling reason not to do that because word will get out and people will less, uh, be less likely to want to deal with that farmer. So this is the world that we inhabit. Thomas Jefferson says, farmers are the chosen people of God if ever he had a chosen people. And yet we know what happens next. When we think about the cycle of history, at least as they understood it, what happens next, all that hard work is going to pay off. After the agrarian phase comes the empire. And, and, and by the way, when Thomas Cole did this, um, he was painting the same physical space. So in each one of these uh, uh, frames, you see this rocky outcropping, this mountain with the boulder on top. That appears um, in each one of these paintings. So it's the same space developing over time. And this is wonderful. This is, this is living the high life, all that hard work of our forefathers, our virtuous, you know, farmer grandparents. And look at what we get to enjoy. The problem, though, is, is that here the success of this civilization sows the seeds of its own demise. Here... You, you kind of lose the uh, everybody is his own boss independence of the previous phase. Here, people become more dependent upon one another, and, and far worse than that, people begin to become dependent upon the government, which makes promises to people. Rarely met, but makes promises that if you give up a little bit of freedom, a little bit of liberty, we'll give to you security, or rank, or preferment. And people begin to lose their work ethic. 
and people begin to become more corrupt. And according to the classical Republican thinkers who wrote about the cycle, people begin to get more decadent. They get more depraved. Society is going to become um, unsustainable. People are going to become so corrupt that society is going to collapse under its own corpulence and decadence and depravity, and that leads us to destruction. And the phase that follows that is back to square one, back to the state of nature, where you pick up the pieces and start all over again. The fear that Britain was teetering on the brink, that America would be pulled down with it, was very much on the minds of the founding generation once the imperial crisis began in the 1760s. Now, of course, before that was the French and Indian War. We were so proud to be English. England was the freest country on the planet. And here we are, as Englishmen who lived in America, fighting with Englishmen from the other side of the ocean against the French and the Indians. The French, of course, an absolutist government, government that uh, was tyrannical. Ours was benevolent and benign. It respected our rights. That's why it existed. And uh, during the course of the French and Indian War, we, we had a new king, George III. Right, the, the physical embodiment of English liberty. The man who, who ultimately, it was his job to ensure that the government did what government was supposed to do, to protect people's rights. They loved him in England. We loved him here. Everybody loved him, with the possible exception of Dalmatians. <laughs> and, and yet, and yet, our success in the French and Indian War, our joint success with the British in the French and Indian War, that is going to um, sow the seeds of the empire's demise. Um, you know, I teach at West Point, so obviously I'm an expert in military history. Um, real quickly for you, um, there are red arrows, there are blue arrows, there are red explosions, and there are blue explosions, and we win! We win the French and Indian War! <laughs> but, But the result is uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty troubling for the British government. Um, the British government has acquired um, a whole lot of new territory. You know, all the land that had been claimed by France all the way up to the Mississippi River, all that is now claimed by the British. The French are vanquished from North America. Um, their last uh, possession um, on the periphery of the continent is Haiti. Um, but beyond that, the French are gone. Um, the British have seen that during the course of this war, their national debt has doubled. So that is very troubling. And the French maybe are gone, but the Native Americans, the Indians, they're still in North America. So the first thing that the, the British decide that they want to do is they want to come up with a way to try to avoid a future expensive war. And, and that leads them to draw the proclamation line of 1763 essentially an invisible line that followed the crest of the Appalachian Mountains that made it so that uh, English people could not legally travel beyond that line. They could not legally, legally own land beyond that line. 
they, their, their safety would, would not be protected. They were beyond the law if they went beyond that line. Because all the land beyond that line was supposed to be reserved for Native Americans. And you can see what the British government is up to here. right? They're, they're thinking good fences make good neighbors. We, we, we know what is going to spark conflict and future wars between English colonists in America and Native Americans. It's contact. It's conflict over land. So let's essentially draw this line. And yet, for Americans... For Americans who participated in significant numbers in the French and Indian War. This is such an insult. I mean, Americans, we have a, a great book by Fred Anderson that focuses on Massachusetts during the French and Indian War. A, a, a future state, a colony for which we have pretty good records and pretty good numbers. In Massachusetts, one-third of all able-bodied, military-aged men actually put on uniforms and left Massachusetts during the French and Indian War. And of course, the government of Massachusetts paid for that to happen. So it's not like we're just sitting around watching the British fight on our continent. We have plenty of skin in this game. And, and yet, and yet the British are now acting as if this was all their victory and we had nothing to do with it. The people in the backcountry, the people who lived up against the Appalachian Mountains, they were in the thick of things. For many of them, the French and Indian War was a constant struggle between them and, and, and Indians who, who lived in the general vicinity. Many of them saw um, the burning of their fields or their settlements or their houses. Many of them, in, in, in battle, lost a, a, a brother or a father or a son or a husband or a limb. And now the British government, their government, was telling them that they couldn't settle on British land that they had won. It, it, it struck them as a, a, a real violation of their liberty to move about. And of course, the British are concerned not only about avoiding a future expensive war, they're also concerned about paying for the last one. And, and, and they can't help but note that Americans contribute in terms of revenue, this is the figure for 1763, in terms of revenue, Americans contributed 1,800 pounds to uh, the British Treasury. In terms of expenses, the expense of maintaining its empire here in America, the British tabulated that it cost them 384,000 pounds. 1,800 pounds in revenue, 384,000 pounds in cost. Of course, members of parliament are going to think that we need to write this imbalance. And of course, as politicians, we can count on them to think, hmm, should we cut spending or should we raise taxes? What do you guess the British parliament did? They raised taxes and they come up with the Stamp Act. And the Stamp Act, it, now it's, it's almost, it's getting absurd. It's almost as if the British... Uh, have a uh, book that they've bought at you know, the British Barnes and Noble or Amazon. They were going online in those days. One of those books, I think this one was called How to Lose an Empire for Dummies. <laughs> because every step they took uh, seemed calculated to push the Americans away from them and, and, and further weaken their hold on this empire. Um, against all their best intentions. 
So the Stamp Act, I mean, it, it's really uh, an obnoxious tax. It's obnoxious for lots of different reasons. Um, one, a very basic and very important one. We don't have representatives in Parliament. There's no practical way that we could have representatives, at least as we understand representation in Parliament. It's just too far away. It takes too long to travel to get information back and forth. It just couldn't work. We have our own representatives and our own houses of assembly, like the House of Burgesses in, in Virginia. We recognize that it's, it's one thing for the Burgesses to tax us, and they can make contributions voluntarily to Britain. But for Britain to tax us, for Parliament to tax us, well, we have no representation. I mean, I know we live in morally relativistic times, but what do you call it when someone reaches into your pocket and takes your money without asking? It's stealing, right? I mean, so here's the British government, the British government which is supposed to exist to protect us from thieves like Rob, the barbarian, now acting like a thief, like Rob, the barbarian. And you actually were acting very much like Parliament because you were so considerate and, uh, and, and genteel in your thuggery that, you know, I mean, it, it was really benign, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so we object on that basis. And then all the practical implications of the Stamp Act. How obnoxious. There really was this stamp that was affixed to paper products of various sorts. And when you saw it, you knew, oh, I'm paying extra for this thing because of this, this stamp. So it was a real reminder um, that the British government was interfering in people's affairs. And, you know, when you're reading How to Lose an Empire for Dummies, uh, an important point is to try to alienate important constituencies. So let's think. Some important constituencies that the Stamp Act can alienate. Well, um, there are merchants. There are a lot of paper products uh, that had to bear the stamp that made them cost more. That meant that people could afford to buy fewer of them. That meant that merchants made uh, less money. And they had to deal with the hassle of administering this you know, stamp tax and reporting it and collecting it. And then there are lawyers Lawyers uh, are always represented, overrepresented in houses of assembly, right? They were back then. They probably are now. Um, lawyers, all contracts, all legal documents had to bear the stamp. The lawyers hated this. And, and then, of course, as you read through How to Lose an Empire for Dummies, a um, very important point is alienating the press. So the stamp, it had to go on newspapers, infuriating journalists and printers. And then we learned how important preachers had become as a result of the Great Awakening. As a result of the Stamp Act, the Stamp even went on to new Bibles that were sold. And then, of course, there are college professors. College professors rarely actually are important, but they love to think that they are. So as good members of Parliament, we don't want to be rude. Um, we want to make them feel included as well. Even college diplomas had to bear the stamp. So you've alienated all these key constituencies, and yet there's one left. The British, to ensure that there were drunken mobs protesting the Stamp Act, also mandated that uh, the stamp had to be affixed to packages of dice and playing cards. So the drunken rabble um, from the taverns were infuriated as well. And people protested. They petitioned. They complained. They burned an effigy um, stamp tax collectors they intimidated actual stamp tax collectors. The British hardly collected anything at all as far as revenue. And the British government, I see all this bad behavior in America, 
And again, they're reading there, How to Lose an Empire for Dummies. What do you do um, if you have a child who's misbehaving? Um, yeah, a couple of years ago, for example, our, our daughter, her name's Grace. She's five now. Um, but a couple of years ago, she was getting ready for nursery school, and she was kind of, uh, it was difficult to get her potty trained. So if, if Grace used the potty and everything went well, what, what should we do in response? Give her a lollipop or make her stand in the corner? Give her a lollipop, right? What if Grace um, very obstinately made a mess in the living room? What would we do? Lollipop or make her stand in the corner? Make her stand in the corner. So what had we done as far as the British were concerned in our resistance and protest and petitioning against the Stamp Act? We'd made a big mess on the imperial carpet. What, did the British, what does the British government do? Remember, they're reading How to Lose an Empire for Dummies. They give us a lollipop. They, they repeal the Stamp Act, right? They're conditioning our behavior. They repeal the Stamp Act. Now, the following year, they're going to um, pass the 1767 Townsend Duties, a similar series of taxes on lead, glass, paint, paper, and tea. Same objections are raised. It's taxation without representation. This is even worse because they're going to take some of the money from that, some of the revenue from that, and they're going to pay royal governors and other imperial officials in the colonies with that revenue. We used to pay them directly. Our houses of assembly would pay the salaries of governors, and that gave our houses of assembly a significant degree of leverage over these crown-appointed officials. But now that leverage was going to be lost. And we do the same thing. We protest the Townsend duties. We boycott. We petition. And what do the British do? Upon seeing all of this what they should consider bad behavior on our part. Lollipop, they're standing in the corner. What's their response? They give us a lollipop. They do. They pass um, a, a resolution ending the Townsend duties. And the day that this takes place, March 5th, 1770, they hope in Parliament will always live on as this banner day in you know, good Anglo-American relations. Unfortunately for them, Unfortunately, perhaps uh, for, for, for us, certainly unfortunately for people in Boston, that day would be marked by a different event. There were uh, a number of troops that had been stationed in Boston. By our modern-day uh, terminology, we'd call them peacekeeping forces. Uh, you got to feel sorry for these guys. They're very poorly paid. Um, many of them work uh, odd jobs. They, they moonlight. Um, in addition to being British soldiers. That causes the people of Massachusetts to really resent them because um, the, uh, the market for labor, the demand for labor, hadn't changed since their arrival. But the supply of labor had skyrocketed since their, their arrival because they all work you know, odd jobs as laborers. So the wages had gone down a lot. So the people of Boston, the, the working men of Boston, hate these British soldiers. Um, one night, Saturday night, March 3rd, 1770, a bunch of uh, British soldiers are off duty. They're walking around town. It's Saturday night. You know, you can imagine the sort of, uh, you know, activities that people had been engaging in. Then a crowd of locals sees these British soldiers. And one local um, yells out to the soldiers, hey, any of you guys need a job? And one of the soldiers, he turns around. and He's like, yeah, yeah, I need work. And then one of the uh, Bostonians said, I'll clean this up slightly because we're going to lunch. Clean my outhouse. 
And the result, this is a big insult, the result was this big street fight, this big brawl. So tensions could not have been higher. The next day, Sunday, March 4th, people go to church. The day after that, Monday, March 5th, 1770, one of these British soldiers is standing in front of the customs house, this horribly hated building, this big target. He's standing guard. And there are all these people who uh, start to gather around, beginning especially with young kids throwing snowballs. First, it's probably just for fun, but then they start throwing sticks and stones and no doubt words. Um, which perhaps did hurt him and his feelings, um, because he called in reinforcements. And so now, you know, there's, there are a number of British soldiers standing guard in front of this building. And then, we don't know how this took place. We don't know why this took place. It seems like an orchestrated um, move, but all of the church bells in Boston started to ring. Now, this is a Monday night. There's no reason, no normal reason, why all the church bells in Boston should start ringing. What was it a sign of when all the church bells started to ring in the middle of the night? Some sort of public emergency, maybe? Like, what, 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 what could be worth sounding an alarm for? Yeah, like a fire or something like that. Some people came out of their houses. Some of them had buckets. You know, they assumed there's a fire. And, and, you know, the crowd kind of all coalesces around the customs house in Boston. And this big revolutionary mosh pit is what it's become. And the soldiers are there with their backs against the wall and their bayonets fixed at the end of their muskets. And people in the front of this crowd have their chests poking into these bayonets. They don't want to get these bayonets poked into their chest. They push back. And the people in the back of the crowd, they feel the crowd surging back. They push forward. And it's chaos and it's pandemonium and people are shouting and the bells are ringing and it's dark and people are throwing things. And, 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 and what could the bells be a sign of? Fire, someone says. And one of the British soldiers does. And then the other British soldiers fire. And then you have 11 bloody bodies on the ground. Now, that's the Boston Massacre. That's as best as we can reconstruct it, what really happened in the Boston Massacre. That's not a massacre. That's like the Boston misunderstanding, you know? <laughs> but as far as Americans are concerned, this is the Boston Massacre. You know, Silversmith, son of liberty, Paul Revere, does this engraving. And it's very clear who he portrays as being at fault. Right? It's Captain Preston raising his sword, giving the command, fire. And it's clear who has their backs against the wall. It's not the British soldiers. It's, it's the citizens of Boston. Even a dog is caught in the crossfire. So the British government is not just taking away people's property. It's not just taking away people's liberty. It's now taking away people's lives. A couple years later, people will go to Griffin's Wharf. They'll board the Eleanor and the Dart Dartmouth and the Beaver, three ships that are loaded up with uh, taxed British tea. People had been boycotting British tea. They'd been drinking alternatives, but now the British, they were wily and cunning. They, uh, they, they decided, they knew that we were good. Like, at heart, we were British, and we loved our, we loved our tea. Loved it. We were drinking this weak herbal stuff and this, you know, black market Dutch stuff. We wanted the real stuff, and they had it. And they taxed it. 
And we had said, no, we will not buy the tea because we will not pay the tax. But they came up with a way to make it almost irresistible. They subsidized that tea so much that even though it was still taxed, it was like even cheaper than the lousy herbal stuff that we had been drinking as an alternative. Our hands were shaking. We were (laughs) trembling, you know, with with temptation. We wanted this tea so badly. So before anyone uh, gave into that temptation, the Sons of Liberty boarded these, these ships, busted open their cargo holds, and dumped into Boston Harbor 90,000 pounds of tea. And they're very scrupulous about this. They, uh, there's one man, old man, was stuffing uh, tea into his pockets, and he was discovered, and he was sent home naked in disgrace. The point wasn't to steal the tea. The point was to, to destroy the tea. They had to smash open um, some padlocks to get into the cargo holds of these vessels. The next day, the three masters of these vessels were presented with new padlocks, right? We were only destroying the property that we needed to destroy. And, you know, we were bound by these these rules, an important thing to consider. Well, you'd think that the British government would be bound by rules too, um, or at least by precedent and tradition. They seem seem to like those things. Except this time, um, again, we'd kind of made a mess on the imperial carpet. Uh, What do the British do? Do they give us a lollipop? Or do they give us... uh, the the sanction of standing in the corner. Before, they'd been just giving us lollipops. What do they give us now? A Walmart beating. (laughs) Did you ever go to Walmart and see parents wailing on their kids? Right? (laughs) We go. I don't know what it is about Walmart that brings out, like, the frustration in parents. I felt it myself. Try not to give in to the temptation. The British just lose control. They impose upon us what they call, what they call, the coercive acts. <laughs> we call them the intolerable acts. They shut down Boston Harbor. They outlaw uh, the meeting of the Massachusetts Assembly. Um, they outlaw town meetings. I mean, we can't even govern ourselves. And we're Englishmen. I mean, governing yourself, that, that's, that's what Englishmen do. Some people begin to say that the British are treating us like, like what? Close. Some people say they're treating us like Irishmen. They're treating us like an invaded, conquered people. Others, others say, no, the British, the British are treating us like slaves. By 1774, Americans have convened a Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Patrick Henry has uh, proclaimed that we are in a state of nature. The British government has gone from being a real government. The British government is supposed to be protecting our liberties. The British government is now destroying our liberties, a fact that is going to seem increasingly clear after April 1775 when the British government sends its troops through Lexington out to Concord to take Americans' weapons from them, to take away their ability to defend themselves, as free people do. It will take Americans a long time, more than a year after those first shots are fired, to determine what the nature of their rebellion will be. But it has begun. And in Philadelphia, finally, in July of 1776, 
people will gather together and they will sign on to declare their independence. Their independence from not only the British government, but their independence from tyrannical government and pledge their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honor to a government that will meet its most essential and, and really only just purpose, that of protecting individual rights. Thanks very much. So if my watch is right, I think we have about 10 minutes for, for questions. Jason Cox, UC Davis. Uh, now, like you spent a lot of the beginning talking about uh, the right the, that your house is your castle, that, that type of property rights, and then the whole thing with you want a farmer as your neighbor. Uh, what would you say is the extent that your neighbors have rights about what you do on your property? So, like in, in the case of uh, there's some libertarians like John Stossel who support some type of EPA because of uh, pollution and things that infringe on other people's property rights. So what would you say would be the rights of the neighbors? And Well, so that's a, that's a great question. I'm probably like the least, you know, qualified person to answer it. I'm a historian. I tell stories, you know, about long ago. Um, but, I, but I do, I think I understand the, the, the question. I understand the basic principle. I mean, I think, I think uh, a, a basic principle that, that people back then, that Americans back then would, would recognize. I mean, I think most would, would see this as sort of a common sense view is that, um, you had the right to do whatever you wanted so long as your choices didn't infringe upon the rights of others. And, and, and so, you know, you raise an interesting and, and kind of thorny example. What if somebody is doing something on their property that in some real way harms you? It harms your property, right? It takes some of your property away from you or somehow takes, so if they're, uh, if they're polluting or, you know, if there's some sort of negative externality it seems that, that that's an instance, you know, when your right is being violated, that you should seek redress. And probably the most efficient thing to do would be to, to you know, deal with that person directly um, or, or, you know, use uh, the court system. Um, but, you know, it could be an argument if this is happening all over for some sort of regulation. You know, the problem is the more you get into these distant solutions, um, you know, the more you're open to uh, unintended consequences, the more you're open to possibility of corruption, people you know, seizing these regulations and making them anti-competitive or using them to their advantage or their competitor's disadvantage. Um, so it's a tough, tricky question, but, but sure. I mean, to the extent that we need government, we need it to protect our rights. And when our neighbors violate them, um, and if we can't you know, stick up for our rights on our own, it seems like that's, that's an appropriate use of government. I certainly think this generation would basically agree to that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, I was curious, with the different classes and groups of Englishmen moving into the colonies, if you could say a bit more about the legacy of the English Civil War on the different areas of the uh, colonies. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know the extent to which, uh, you know, it really led to, to great schisms or divides or tensions, um, you know, within, among people in America. I mean, there are, uh, there are some political consequences you know, to all the turbulence that takes place um, back in old England. I mean, you have, as a result of, of that for a while, um, the dominion of New England. Um, you have some colonies 
uh, insecure about their continuing existence that might be amalgamated into this larger um, New England. Um, you have, uh, you know, all sorts of concerns about how that is going to change the, the relationship between um, Britain and the colonies. Um, but, you know, I think we have on our side some distance. I think we have on our side a, a general, like, acceptance on both sides of the Atlantic of, you know, what we now call benign neglect. Um, and it's sort of difficult to make us do things that we don't want to do. Um, so even at that early stage um, in the 1600s, uh, Americans are, are beginning to show their willingness to stand up um, when parliament um, makes, or, or, or not parliament, but British government makes laws um, contrary to their wishes. And there are gonna be other like minor rebellions like in 1721 and 1722, British government passes um, the White Pines Acts, which um, the crown claims as its own white pine trees that grow on people's private property because it needs them for the mass of its ships. Um, people aren't supposed to be able to chop down these pine trees on their property. They're, they belong officially to the king. And people think that this is absurd and, you know, uh, d disobey this, chop down these trees at will um, protest. And the British, you know, as was their pattern in the 1760s, the British are eventually going to essentially admit that they made a mistake and, and repeal that law. So um, yeah, I think we, we're certainly aware of what's going on over there, but we, we really have made it a point that we, we like to, to live unfettered and, and free of too much intervention from the British in our own internal affairs. There was always a dividing line that Americans made between um, their internal affairs and then imperial trade policy and other things that were ex external to colonial borders where it was, they thought, appropriate for Parliament to intervene. Yes. Hi, my name is Laurel. I'm from the King's College in New York City. And my question is, well, I, most of us would acknowledge that the taxes and other regulations imposed on the colonists by the Crown were unjustified. When you compare America to the rest of the world in the mid-18th century, they were some of the least taxed, yes. and least regulated people, and had the highest standard of living per capita. So I'm wondering what it is that they were able to perceive that caused them to revolt when they were essentially the richest people in the world and, and living better than most of the people in the world at yeah, that time. I, I think everything, everything you, you included is correct. I mean, I think, um, I can't remember where I got this figure. I should probably look it up again. But uh, I, I, my understanding is in terms of like your, the average person's tax load, Americans paid one seventh the taxes of people in England. So we were very lightly taxed, which perhaps is why we enjoyed the highest standard of living in the world, right? <laughs> which is perhaps why we were so prosperous. When the British soldiers came over during the War for Independence, they were jealous. They couldn't believe how well we lived. They couldn't believe it. How well just regular people have, would have all this land and would be able to build these houses and feed themselves so well. And even then, Americans were living longer and they were growing taller. Um, we were more literate. I mean, it was really, uh, as, you know, the 18th century, it's, it's brutal by our standards. It is rough. Um, you know, it's maybe my favorite historical time period, but if I had a time machine, I would travel forward, not back. Um, and and uh, it, it was a rough time, but in relative terms, it was amazingly prosperous. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that Americans refused to uh, accept this, this, this new tax burden 
which of course could lead to an increased tax burden, even if these initial taxes weren't all that onerous. It's because they had this rich tradition of, of liberty. They, they knew where it could go. Um, and you know, if you believe in your rights, if you really believe in your rights, you're gonna stand up for your rights even when the transgressions against them seem small. Because if you'll stand for small transgressions against your rights, what do you have to appeal to? What kind of argument could you possibly make when the transgressions against your rights suddenly become large? So I, I think that that's what's going on. Certainly that's how they explain themselves. Thank you. Sure, thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Dick Tracy, I'm from Vermont. Uh, I have two questions, um, one kind of a uh, self-interest and one is more general. Um, more general, the declaration, it seems that the authors go out of their way uh, to describe the creator in a very general sense. Uh -huh. The creator in the last line refers to the rights the of nature and nature's God. Yeah. The divine providence. Like they went out of their way to avoid any mention of a, a specific faith. Um, so the first question is, should we read anything into that? Um, and more particularly to my own situation, my ancestors came from the border of Rhode Island, Connecticut, to Vermont in 1772. Um, and I'm wondering if you, I've often wondered, well, what was the motivation? Uh -huh. uh, and were there any political things going on at that time? Townsend Acts had already expired, is what you said today. Right. So were there anything going on that might have been the impetus to go to the frontier instead of stay on their own comfortable little farm in Rhode Island? Yeah, last question first. I'm not so sure, but I know that like there were no, Vermont was a boom area at that time. I think even Ethan Allen was from Connecticut, if I'm not mistaken. So, so it's not... Um, it, they weren't following an unfamiliar path. Remember too that this, these are communities that are old communities down you know, by Long Island Sound and the Atlantic Ocean. Um, these are communities where people have ha been having eight kids on average for several generations. So I'm guessing that land is much more valuable, it's in less supply, and if you move up to Vermont, suddenly you know, it's a whole new world and life, life is easier. So that would be my guess. Yeah. Um, and then the first question you asked was... Oh, yeah. Well, I think it was an acknowledgement of, of, of a simple fact. That really turned out to be a very fortunate one. Um, the simple fortunate fact is uh, there were lots of different religions in colonial America. And, and, you know, even if you just look at the sort of official religious affiliations of the colonies, they weren't all the same. And, and, and so from the get-go, whenever we were working together on a national basis... We were trying to make room for everybody um, so that everyone would be included, everyone would, would know that they were just as welcome as everybody else and no less welcome than anyone else. So this then in your mind is a conscious general effort to avoid specificity with regard to a religion. Uh, yeah, as far as that specific phrasing, you know, comes from Jefferson. Yeah. I, think, I think he's trying to, you know, weave, he's, he's basing his argument um, in part on theology, but in part on uh, natural rights, which come from the enlightenment. You know, so when you talk about uh, the, the laws of nature and nature's God, you know, you're talking about the, the God who gives us natural rights. Um, and it's the laws of nature and nature's God. So, you know, I think even if someone didn't believe in nature's God, the laws of nature um, still provide authority to, to these, to these self-evident truths. Thank yeah, you. thank you. Are we out of time? All right. Thank you.